Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Alistair Lord, otherwise known as the Renaissance Yorkshireman. You can check out his YouTube channel and website, and he's also written a book called Post-Capitalism, an alternative to the Great Reset. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. It's wonderful to be here, MC Squared. So you just did a podcast yesterday. Can you talk about it uh, a little bit? We're going to wait a little bit to get this out there so you can update the website. So, But you did do a couple of podcasts, one today and one yesterday. How'd it go? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, the one today is with you. The one yesterday was with Richard Vobes, who has become quite big in the last year in the UK. Um, I suspect a lot of your uh, American listeners don't know him, but as I say, he's quite big here in the UK. So yeah, we we had a, about a fifty-minute talk yesterday about some of the um, some of the issues in in, in my book, uh, post-capitalism, an alternative to the Great Reset. So you know, he's kind of interested in you know alternative narratives to what's being pushed on us by you know the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the UN. You know the usual suspects. So uh, totally, I think those are uh, those are all. I, I, I'm an anarchist, and we can talk about that a little bit. But I oppose um, concentrated wealth and power in any illegitimate system of power, uh, especially those that coerce or um, you know repress, oppress, use force, those sorts of things. Um, but you know, co- coercive institutions that limit freedoms are an enemy of mine. I oppose. Um, the state, centralized states, powerful centralized states. Uh, I oppose, um, you know, military states, uh, standing armies, all that sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, what's what's kind of with your book and the alternatives to capitalism, you had mentioned it in our pre-call, um, societies maybe can get uh, around um, maybe smaller societies of 5,000 or more people without maybe a centralized government. But you had mentioned that maybe around, what, 15,000 people, there seems to be a need for some sort of power system. Uh, so maybe you could talk to that a little bit and maybe you could discuss, you know, anarchist theory. I've recently gotten big into anarchism the last few years. Um, and I think some you know, forms of power are legitimate. For example, um, you know, let's say your son or daughter is a two-year-old or three-year-old wants to run across the street and you restrain them, you know, because they're going to get hit by a car. That's a legitimate um, use of power. So it's not always uh, illegitimate, but a lot of the times uh, I think that power systems and certainly 
vast concentrations of wealth and power are legitimate, like all the the IMF, for example, and all those um, you know things that you mentioned before. And certainly, you know, I, I think the nation state is an enemy of mine. I'd love a class of society where maybe eventually that nation state would completely dissolve. I like anarcho syndicalism. Uh, where basically, you know, society is organized around democratic workplaces, co-ops, uh, and maybe we have loosely affiliated uh, federation states around the wor- world, uh, but maybe are organized around local communities or the workplaces that aren't, you know, ginormous and and stature like the nation state is. I think the nation sure, state, yeah. it, it's not a natural thing. Uh, I think it was recently created in the last, I don't know, several hundred years, and I'd love it to just go away. And uh, the constant war that we've been involved in, I think, are because of these nation states the last several hundred years. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff there to get hold of. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I consider myself a post-capitalist. I'm not an anti-capitalist. Uh, and I'm certainly not by any means a communist, but um, I, I'm a tr- cherry picker with with what I go with, you know. So I, I pick some things from anarchism and libertarian, some things from socialism and some things from capitalism, because, I mean, basically, I'm opposed to ideology. You know, I, I, I go on evidence, you know, if it works, use it. If it doesn't work, don't use it. Now, my position with the kind of state and non-state um, is based partly on the research of uh, Elman Service, who was an anthropologist, and also uh, Professor Robin Dunbar of, of Durham University. So, um, in, in the anthropological literature, uh, they, they identify four types of human habitation, three non-states and the state. So a band is like maybe six to 60 people, a tribe is maybe 60 to 300 people, and a chieftain is like five, uh, 500 to 5,000 people. And the state usually appears at, let's say, 10 to 15,000 people. Now, for me, I believe that if you've got 15,000 people or more, you simply can't organize them without a state. You know, So I, I think that the anarchist and libertarian argument against the state breaks down at 15,000 people. Um, but what I do believe is that we should have both states and non-states running in parallel. And if you want to choose to live outside the control of the state, I believe that you should have the right to do so. Um, now, as things stand at the moment, with, with a very, very small number of exceptions of, of some tribesmen maybe in Papua New Guinea or, or the Namib Desert in Namibia, you know, nobody lives outside the control of the state. Everyone uh, falls under the control of the state. So, you know, close to 100% of the population today. But if we go back seven or 8,000 years, you know, before the rise of Sumer and, and, and Egypt as, as nation states, then pretty much assuming that Plato's um, uh, stories of Atlantis are in fact not correct, if we assume that, then seven or 8,000 years ago, nobody lived under the control of the state. It was all bands, tribes, and chieftains. And that'll have been the case for like, you know, more than 200,000 years. So for me, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that there are no comparative advantages from living in small non-state forms. You know, 
if humans lived in them for over 200,000 years, there must be advantages there. Um, but I mean, you know, partly the number of people who can live together, it's partly related to the size of the human neocortex. So this guy who I mentioned earlier, Dunbar, his research indicates that given the size of the human neocortex, you can only ever know and maintain a personal relationship with 150 people. Now, if you imagine a small community, a tribe of 150 people or less, you can actually know every single person in that community. Now, I would argue that that gives us huge advantages because you can sidestep the need for money in a lot of, in, in a lot of instances because you can have a personal relationship. So you don't need money in those communities. I mean, you might still have some kind of currency, but you don't need it. Now, with, with a community of 5,000 people, you can't all know each other individually. But I think that you, you can have a kind of, so long as you've got some kind of shared value system, you don't need um, a police force with a legal monopoly on violence, and you don't necessarily need uh, a formalized bureaucracy. Um, but, as I say, I think once you get to 15,000 people, there really is uh, a need for a formalized state. Because the fear of violence from strangers, I would argue, is, is the single biggest argument in favor of a police force with a legal monopoly on violence. Fear is weaponized by the ruling class, though, for sure. I think fear is weaponized to, um, get, to control people. Um, I think there's a lot of methods uh, and things that can be weaponized to control people. Uh, but fear is for sure. Uh, just look at the propaganda, the media, certainly the right-wing um, political party in this country. There's always some sort of threat, whether it's Iraq and weapons of mass destruction or whether it's Putin or whether it's, um, you know, some of the Latin American countries that were um, starting to resist uh, American colonization, you know, they became a threat. Um, so it's always fear, and, and it's usually weaponized by the ruling class. Uh, I think these giant militaries, the military-industrial complex, uh, they're a little more than a funnel of private, uh, I'm sorry, public money, taxpayer money, to private high-tech business. So the military-industrial complex basically funnels uh, taxpayer money under the guise of defense uh, to subsidize these industries, like, for example, like SpaceX, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, all these, um, you know, all these technologies and all this corporate welfare, they use fear to say, oh, you know, we have these enemies and that sort of stuff. So if the population is in fear enough, they might be um, more receptive to whatever this giant trillion dollar U.S. military budget that we have today. So that's my biggest issue with the state is it's typically um, the vehicle used by the ruling class, the police domestically, and then internationally, um, the military is used as a vehicle to carry out violence and to carry out the ruling class agenda. And they get us to uh, acquiesce uh, to this ginormous military state. The U.S. leads the world in 
violence, uh, you know, it leads the world in weapons trafficking, all these sorts of stuff. At least it's a leading terrorist state. Uh, but it uses fear to get people to acquiesce and to, um, you know, uh, I guess support use of violence. Uh, again, all under the guise of defense. And that's what I don't like about it. So that's why I think the enemy, to me, is the nation state and certainly the standing armies, the military industrial complex, and this trillion dollar war budget. I, like, I think we should prioritize um, domestic needs, like social programs such as education, health care. Um, you know, water, I think, I think all necessary, like housing, like these things that people need, these necessary things, I think capitalism is inadequate or even incapable of meeting even the most basic human needs. I think if we prioritized, um, you know, the, what, how we do things and, and maybe less of uh, money and funding to, again, the giant military industrial complex, to the police state, to mass incarceration, and more on social programs, I think we'd have a much better society. Uh, my biggest issue with, with getting rid of the state, though, I don't think we should get rid of it tomorrow, because we have these huge transnational corporations with amassed wealth and power, and uh, they are, again, transnational. They're all over the globe. A lot of them U.S.-based, but they are based in you know home countries around the world. I think Apple now says it's headquartered uh, in Ireland because of a generous tax status. So I think if we dissolved the nation-state or the state system as it's currently constructed, we are going to have an even worse dystopian uh, hell uh, run by corporations, more so than they already do. Of course, corporations and with Citizens United here in the United States, they can buy elections uh, explicitly uh, and not even do it under the table. Legally, they can do it uh, because now speech is money here, but all the money in politics. Uh, I think these corporations and these corporate elites run the government so I think it would be a bad, that's, that's kind of what like libertarianism is in, in America. Like I'm a classical libertarian or socialist anarchist, however you want to describe it. These terms of ideology, anyone can have the term. But in America, uh, li libertarians are like some sort of capitalist dystopian reality where all of society is privately owned. And, you know, if you want a road, you got to join with others to build it out of your own pocket. And there's no governments, no nothing. I think that would be a terrible place to live. Um, without governments, because I think corporations would just own everything, you know, and I think we, I think 99% of right. us would be, you know, in little ghettos and, and villages yeah. and huts and, and the rest of the, in the 1% would be living in a life of lavish luxury. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand all that. And I mean, I, I, for me, I think this is one of the central paradoxes of the human condition is that, you know, with, with, with over 7 billion humans on the planet, we need the state to organize that many people. However, the arguments against the nature of the state, the, the anarchist arguments against the, uh, against the nature of the state is, is basically, as I understand it, is dark triad personality types. Uh, so the dark triad, psychopathy, narcissism and Machiavellianism. These people will attempt to t seize control of the state to protect themselves from repercussion for their actions. And I mean, I think we can see this in most countries in the world. But if you look at a country like, say, Somalia, where the state has completely collapsed, it's also not a good result for the people. So you've got this. I mean, this is a false dichotomy, I would say, but, but let's go with it for the moment. So if we say there's a dichotomy between the collapse of the state and absolute chaos and the state controlled by uh, psychopathic narcissists. I mean, it, it's like a choice between a shit sandwich with butter and a shit sandwich with mayo. 
but whichever way you look at it, it's a shit sandwich. Now, it's a difficult one because what do you do? Well, I mean, I, I think there's lots of partial solutions to this. So I think one of the first ones is that really we need to look at human psychology. So there's the psychology of the dark tribe personality types. And I think this is where most mainstream economists go wrong because they're making all these models and they're not taking into, the, into account the behavior of psychopaths in powerful positions. And I mean, for me, this is like, you know, I mean, it's, your analysis is going to be terrible if, if, if you're not taking this into account. And most economists are, are you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're fucking dreadful, really. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons is because they don't take account of powerful psychopaths and narcissists. So, first of all, we need to recognize that these people can seize control of a system. And it's not just, and, and, and they may only be 1% of the population. Of course, they're overrepresented in like banking and politics and in the in the profession of lawyers, they're overrepresented. But also they can kind of infect other people with their value system. Because, you know, people take their cues from influential people and people in power. Children take their cues from their parents, right? Now, if these people you're looking up for, looking up to, are behaving in a particular way then you will see that behavior as justified. So I do believe that psychopaths can infect other people within the same company or government and get them to start acting in ways which they wouldn't do normally. And I think, you know, you can find so many examples of this, you know, in, in Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany. I mean, you know, you can find examples of this from all over the world. Um, but also you need to look at the psychology of what is known, of, of what's sometimes called pro-social psychopaths. Now, the pro-social psychopath, so I'll just talk a little bit about psychopathy here. So there's a psychopathy checklist. Uh, it was originally created by this psychiatrist called uh, Robert Hare, Dr. Robert Hare. And it's a, it's a, it's a score out of zero to 40. So your average person, is probably going to score two, three, four out of out of out of forty. Um, to be clinically defined as a psychopath, you need to be scoring twenty-seven or more out of forty. And depending on what textbook or, or, or website you read, it might say that these people are one percent of the population, two percent of the population, 07 percent of the population. But you know, it's pretty small. But there's a second group known as pro-social psychopaths who are scoring, you know, somewhere between a normal person and somewhere between a psychopath. So let's say somewhere between 10 and 20 out of 100. Now, these people have a comparative advantage in our system. So, for example, if you compare doctors and surgeons, doctors usually score fairly low in psychopathy, but surgeons score very high. Now, the difference between a doctor and a surgeon, or, or one of the differences, with a doctor, you need a good bedside manner. You need to be able to talk to people. But as a surgeon, if you're going to perform brain surgery on them, you don't want to know that person. You don't want to have a personal relationship with that. But you need to be able to act when there's a problem straight away without thinking about it. So in certain professions, bomb disposal expert, 
bodyguard, certain sports. Um, it gives you a comparative advantage to be one of these pro-social psychopaths. And, you know, depending again on what you read, they could be five to 10% of the population. Now, these people, I think if you look in all kinds of storytelling, sagas of the Vikings, you know, James Bond, so many films, we see these people, you know, Tony Soprano from The Sopranos. We see these people in so much storytelling because instinctively we understand that they make good leaders. Now, here's the thing. I say if we can get these people on board, uh, these pro-social psychopaths, with a strong value system, which many of them have, right, those people are really important for for leadership positions and for for changing the way that a lot of these systems and companies operate. I think um, the only check, so I, I read a lot of Aristotle in classical philosophy, uh, and he had mentioned um, basically in his politics that democracy is flawed, but it's probably the best. Um, but the problem with democracy would be, you know, the majority are typically the poor and the middle class and the minority are the rich. And the in a democracy, it's basically government by the poor and they will use their political power to redistribute money, resources, land, property, whatever, uh, more equally. And that would be unjust because, you know, it, it basically governments preserve privilege and preserve, you know, the status quo and that sort of thing. So uh, to just divide it up evenly when, you know, maybe the argument would be, oh, these people earned it or whatever, you know. Um, there's a lot of, of course, nepotism and, you know, uh, advantages to being born rich uh, and that sort of stuff. But basically his, his solution was, you know, to create a welfare state where, you know, you, you take care of the most vulnerable. Uh, you have resources like housing and, and affordable food and you know, that sort of stuff. It was more primitive to society, of course. Uh, but I do like reading some stuff about like primitive communism. I'm not a communist, certainly. I think uh, Bakunin, an anarchist theorist, talked about the red bureaucracy that was the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm reading a book uh, on Rudolf by Rudolf Rocker right now called Anarcho Syndicalism. That is how I would describe myself, and it's nothing about chaos. Anarcho Syndicalism is a highly organized society, but more so democratically organized around the workplaces, kind of like co-ops and stuff, uh, worker councils, all that kind of stuff I think would be beneficial. And um, again, maybe long term, you know, we get rid of these corporations or transform them. And hopefully in the long term view, you know, the, the state dissolves. I think uh, Marx had talked about that too. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a Marxist, although I do read his stuff. But yeah, I think in the long term, you know, hopefully uh, the state dissolves and hopefully one day we can live in a classless society. I think that's possible. Uh, anarchy uh, and democracy, I think uh, the job is never done. In this Rudolf Rocker book, anarchists kind of don't have like a long term view. They always just think, um, you know, illegitimate concentrated power uh, should be dissolved, should be dismantled. So, you know, there's always going to be some people coming along that want control, some psychopaths, you know. That's why I think the best defense of that would be 
democracy, you know, one vote, um, you know, one person, one vote, one citizen, expand democracy. Um, I get rid of these hierarchies, get rid of these forms of domination, control, power, uh, where a small group of people exercises power uh, over everyone else. Uh, I do think, you know, there are some good things that the state can offer, especially in a capitalist society dominated by corporations. For example, a minimum wage and OSHA, which is like safety workplace standards, health standards, social security, um, healthcare generally, education, all that sorts of, all those sorts of things, roads, bridges, you know, I don't think, like, when I say, like, the nation state is dissolved, I mean, these giant nation states that go to war with each other and have over hundreds of years, especially, uh, you know, World War II, industrialized warfare, Uh, the Europeans were uh, slaughtering them, slaughtering each other for hundreds of years, that was their favorite sport in Europe. Uh, and eventually, you know, came to the point in World War II where they knew if there was a World War III, that might be the end of us. So uh, I, I, in my vision of anarchy and democracy, it's never the fight for, um, you know, democracy or anarchy or a society where their illegitimate um, concentrated power is dissolved is never finished. There's always going to be people coming along and power systems that come along. So what we do is just try to identify them and fight against it and try to transform them into a more egalitarian, fair and democratic society. Uh, but yeah, I think if, I think like the personality um, types, especially uh, psychopaths, there's a, there was actually a video or a documentary, uh, the corporation and they're, they're they want written down. It's a good video. Maybe I have tweeted it out. Sure, before. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. And they, they, they basically, they, they operate like psychopaths, corporations. They, you know, there's externalities, um, like repercussions, like destruction of the environment, pollution, massive extinction, uh, CO2 emissions. Um, those are all called externalities, you know I mean? Under, under economics. So it's just like, yeah. So what what, what say you about like, I don't think direct democracy is possible. We can't possibly vote on everything, but what say you on, you know, there is no long-term goal. We just fight against systems of oppression, hierarchy, domination, concentrated wealth and power. And what say you about democracy? And I know it's an idealist form, direct democracy, but maybe as much democracy as possible with all the money in politics, especially here in America, we don't have uh, working class representation. We have, you know, government by the rich for the rich, but don't take my word for it. Uh, Princeton in 2014 said the U.S. was an oligarchy. Basically, uh, 90% of the population are disenfranchised. Only about 10% uh, matter in terms of policy formation. And if you're at the top, you know, the fraction of 1%, Basically, basically, politically, you get whatever you want. Lower taxes, less environmental standards, no rise of the minimum wage, no universal health care, none of those uh, social domestic programs. They want everything to be uh, privatized and dominated by corporations. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so, first of all, you, you, you mentioned cooperatives. So... I used to work, uh, so I, I, I was an English language teacher by trade. I'm, I'm now in the process of, of creating my own courses to sell online. But I was an English language teacher, teaching English to foreign students for like 25 years. And I worked in the Basque country for a while in northern Spain in, in 2018. And in the Basque country, uh, they have a lot of cooperatives, right? They, they're quite different from the rest of Spain in that respect. And during the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, they were the most resilient part of the Spanish economy. 
and they went down to a four-day week, and the workers took a, uh, a cut in their wages, but so did the management. Now, the workers and the management sat down together. They discussed this. They worked out a strategy, and everyone took a pay cut, but worked less hours. And then when the economy picked up, they went back to normal. And, and in the end, almost nobody lost their job. So I think there is a lot of evidence, certainly from the Basque country, the cooperatives actually are extremely efficient way of running businesses and can work in the long term. But obviously, you need to have a certain mentality from the management, because if the management are on board with this, it can happen relatively easily. But if they're not, it's not going to happen. So, so that's one point. Now, as far as uh, democracy goes, I mean, in my book, I, I, I talk about some of my theories for, let's say, egalitarian-ish government. So let's imagine, and this is the case in both America and Britain, that uh, you have a two-house system. So I'll, 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 I'll use the UK as an example because it's where I'm from, but I mean, you know, it's, it's same, same, but different, as the Thais would say, um, as, as the UK. So at the moment, um, we have 650 MPs who are elected through a first-past-the-post system. Now, this is problematic in all sorts of ways um, because you'll get a political party, they'll get like somewhere around 55% of the seats, but they only got like 38% of the vote. So it's not very democratic on that level. Right, but here's the thing. Um, there's a website you can go to. Uh, you can Google Electoral Reform Society. It's, they're a UK-based organisation, and they've carried out lots of research on different electoral systems. Now, it turns out, according to their, um, their research, that... Um, oh, what's it called now? Um, shit, wait a minute. It's just popped out of my head. Um, single transferable vote. That's what it's called. Single transferable vote. So it scores 14 out of 15. So it scores high on local representation, five out of five local representation, um, five out of five on proportionality, four out of five on, on something else. I, I can't remember the exact criteria now. Anyway, you can go and check the evidence yourself. They, they, they look at like 10 different systems. So if we have a system like a single transferable vote, so let's say there's five candidates standing, you order them numbers one to four, in the order that you want them, rather than just putting an X against one box. And then the votes are counted, the person who come last is eliminated, and then their votes are redistributed. So first of all, I think if you're going to have electoral politics, a uh, single transferable vote is the, is the best system according to the evidence. Um, the second point that I would make is that we always have to have a vote for Ron or vote for nota um, option on the ballot paper. So Ron, reopen nominations, nota, none of the above. Now, here's the thing. In the UK at the moment, there is no vote for Ron option, right? You either vote for one of the candidates, you don't vote, or you spoil your ballot paper. Those are your options. But if you have a vote for Ron option, and Ron wins the vote, no one is elected, right? Now, as things stand, the politicians can all be shit. So you're getting a choice of four or five shit options, but one of them will be elected. And they, and they know that no matter how bad they are, 
one of them is going to get the job. But if you have a nota or run option on the ballot paper, then it could be that no one is elected. Well, what happens then? Well, either you just don't have someone standing from your constituency or an election is held again and none of the people who stood in the first election are allowed to stand in the second election. Now, here's the thing. If there isn't this option, uh, politicians are not afraid of the electorate and politicians should be afraid of the electorate. They should be a, a, a high caliber of candidate. Do you know what I mean? They should be people who have a sense of duty. And those people do exist, right? I mean, there are some good politicians out there. They're not all complete dickheads and psychopaths. You know, there are some good candidates. Just most, the moment, just the vast majority. Just <laughs> the majority, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. I like and Jeremy the, Corbyn, uh, Bernie Sanders is decent. You know, there's some decent ones out there uh, for sure. I don't want to be, I don't want a leader to tell me what to do. I want real working class representation where people get in there in Washington and they do what the community elects them to do. They do actually what they're going to say they're going to do to get elected. They're not just telling us lies and then we pull uh, a lever or a button for one of two candidates uh, and they're both pretty terrible, you know, both bad choices. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the problem at the moment. It's like um, you've got five different choices of vanilla. I mean, low quality vanilla at that. And what if you don't like vanilla? What if you want chocolate flavor? Do you know what I mean? It's like and, and, and this, unfortunately, is the reality in so many elections and in so many parliaments around the world. So let's let's go back to the Basque country in Spain, Mondragon, uh, the largest uh, co-op in the world. Um, it, it does have to operate within a capitalist system, within a capitalist framework, um, you know, a for-profit system. I hope uh, a world where people are placed above profits uh, is, is, and I think it's possible. I want to live in that kind of world. Um, but, you know, Montregon is it's better than a corporation for sure. I've actually done some studies on corporations. I think like in a five-year uh, corporate startup, something like half um, are still running. Uh, less than half, I think, are still, um, you know, out there and running uh, a business startup. The, 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 the likelihood that it's still around in five years versus a co-op, which you said is a lot more resilient. I think it's over like yeah. 60% and the workers are actually happier. Um, they are actually yeah. part of the decision-making process. Responsibilities are shared in decision-making. Yes. Um, Mondragon, yes. they actually vote on their managers. I think that managers, I believe, every year are up for election. Uh, you know, And if you don't treat your staff or your workforce um, properly, you're out. Uh, I like that. Instead of the other way around where managers make all the decisions and it's top down, workers actually have a say in who does those managerial roles. And I think the same thing for managerial roles within a workplace should be the same in politics. I think the local community and real working class representation uh, should occur where you vote for someone out of your own ranks and they go to Washington or wherever uh, to vote on policies. And they do um, what you want them to do. They do what they're going to say. They uh, they do what they say they're going to right. do, not just a lot of campaign lies like mo most politicians here in the United States. Biden, right. for sure. I don't know what yeah. he's done. Uh, a lot of lies on the campaign trails and all of them. Uh, never came to fruition. Uh, but in Mondragon, there's also wage ceilings. Uh, I believe some of them yeah. typically around like three to one, five to one, or even up to nine to one, the lowest paid worker and the highest paid worker. I like that. Yes. And then it is a for-profit 
you know, system or it operates in that way, I believe. But I think, I think there's more equal egalitarian distribution of those profits. They're shared more equally instead of just, you know, the board of directors and the executives at the top get all the profits and the workers get, you know, performance reviews and maybe a one or 2% raise in a pizza party. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I was there in the Basque country, I was actually working for Mondragon Lingua and I, I worked in the town and I lived in the town of Mondragon. Um, and I used to teach some of these uh, some of these managers one to one one to one classes and, and some of some of the uh, sort of technicians and middle management I used to teach in, in small groups. So I actually talked to some of them about, you know, the system because I'm, I'm interested in it. And. Basically, I mean, worker satisfaction and worker, uh, what's the word? Um, um happiness that's not quite the right word i'm looking for but you know what i mean work worker satisfaction is extremely high right so um and in, in actual fact they've got a shortage of workers in the basque country now this is the only region of spain which has this because i also worked in andalusia in the south of spain where uh, unemployment is 20 percent now they can't get enough skilled workers in the basque country that's how well their economy is working now arguably there's there's certain you know cultural reasons why this may have happened because of the uh, uh the basque people and the basque language so they kind of have this um i don't know tighter community let's say um that may or may not be a factor um but the fact of the matter is the 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 companies do extremely well and you know people are generally happy with the way the uh, the factories and the companies are run because there's a lot of communication between management and workers and because the wage differential is not stratospheric i mean you know there's a plenty of com companies in in the uk where your average worker is is earning somewhere between you know let's say 20 and 40,000 pounds a year depending on the company. So let's say around 30,000 um, pounds. But the management, the senior management are earning, you know, 2 million, 3 million pounds, whatever it is, a ridiculous amount of money. And let's not forget that some of these companies go bust. But the management don't have to pay back the money. So if they do a shit job, they're not suffering, right? You know, I mean, they're not, um, Okay, they lose their job, but I mean, they, they get to keep all the money that they've saved up until that point. And, you know, so, yeah, the cooperatives do, you know, the, the, the evidence is, is there that they are extremely effective and they could replace, you know, the standard version of, of companies that we have at the moment. And the executives also get like golden parachutes, bonuses stock options, all different kinds of stuff. So they typically land on yeah. their feet uh, after they ride the, ride the winds of a golden parachute to safety. And when workers get fired or laid off, they get sometimes nothing. Uh, I know some countries have like, um, you know, like Germany, for example, they have um, standards where someone gets laid off or something, they get, you know, a large percentage of their salary, you know, to get maybe six months where they don't have to stress about, you know, an income. Here in the United States, I don't think there are any guarantees for for that. It just depends on, you know, the company and their reputation. Uh, that's about it. And, of course, the right wing in the United States uh, 
is determined to dismantle uh, the social safety nets. So like unemployment insurance and all that kind of stuff. And here in the United States where medical bankruptcy is the number one reason people go bankrupt, uh, over 60% of people, I think 66.5% if I remember a stat I read this week, I think something like 66.5% of bankruptcies are the direct result of a medical emergency. And there in the UK, um, they're trying to dismantle the NHS, the National Health System. But one reason I think in the United states that healthcare is tied to a job is because it's a lot easier to exploit the workforce especially if you have a chronic disease or condition you know if you quit your job you're not gonna have health care so you got to keep working and if anything you know land your next job uh, beforehand uh, and that also might mean you're not going to talk back against your manager if they tell you to do something that you know is sure. wrong or if they make yeah. you work nights and weekends and that sort of stuff because you know if you say no and resist they might fire you and you might be without health care and not long after that you might be bankrupt yeah yeah all true all true um yeah i mean they're in the process of dismantling the national health service in the uk um i mean it's it's, it's going to be an absolute catastrophe um but i mean we pay a lot of tax in the uk you know i mean i think we pay you know substantially more than the us is is my understanding yes but some of the tax we pay is called national insurance and that is directly for the nhs so it's kind of like they, they they're going to screw us over twice we're paying for the nhs with our taxes but they're privatizing it anyway but they're not going to reduce uh national taxes. income contributions right, right. so so, yeah, you're going to pay high taxes, but you're going to get almost nothing for it. Now, I mean, the thing about taxes, a lot of people say a lot of things about taxes. Now, if taxes are being spent efficiently in a, a reasonably egalitarian manner, I don't necessarily have a problem with paying a certain level of tax. Um, now, I have worked in Saudi Arabia and I have worked in Oman. There's no income tax there. And there's there's no sales tax. And I mean, it's nice getting your full wage. Um, but those countries have oil wealth so they can fund their services through the money that they get from selling oil. Right. But that's that's not the case for every country in the world. Um, now, in the UK, the tax rates are sky high and it used to be that you got a reasonably good level of services for your tax. But that's no longer the case. And I mean, I do resent paying high levels of tax for shit services. Um, but like I say, you know, it's kind of like, you know, paying a certain amount of money and getting something in return is one thing. Paying a lot of money and getting absolute shit in return is a different matter. So for me, the issue of taxation, in some cases, taxation is theft. I agree with that. But I don't think that it's always the case. However, it is open for abuse. You know, it's it's so easy if you get, you know, narcissistic psychopaths in control of government that they can fleece the taxpayer of, of that money. And, and, you know, I resent that. And I think there's plenty of people out there, certainly in the UK, where we used to a high level of taxation. There's plenty of people here who don't mind paying if they're getting good services. But 
that used to be the case, it's no longer the case. You know, we, we're no longer getting a good level of service for the taxation that we pay. Yeah, I think uh, I don't I don't subscribe to taxation is theft uh, and not in a democracy, at least where it's government by the people for the people. Uh, if it's an oligarchy or there is a ruler, a tyrant, an autocrat, a despot, then sure, taxation might be theft because they're going to do whatever their agenda is. And it's not going to be for the common good, certainly. And even the common good, you know, what's good for the janitor uh, or a teacher uh, might not necessarily be good for a corporate banker or a CEO. At least, you know, their agenda or what they want out of government might be a little bit different than, you know, someone uh, at a different class or a different class status. Um, I think that I'm doing a podcast right now, some research uh, on the banking system. It was essentially set up by these banking cartels. The Federal Reserve can essentially print money since Nixon abolished the gold standard and dismantled the Bretton Woods system and now uh, deregulated the whole world economy. Uh, we got something like two, $21 trillion, maybe even more of unaccountable money just floating out there hoarded in tax havens and the Panama right. Papers and the Pandora Papers alluded to right. that. But in yeah. general, there's a banking cartel in the United States. Um, you know, Once the, the Federal Reserve was set up, the people are no – and the government, the, if, if we're a democracy, which again, Princeton said we're not. But uh, you know, it, the people would be in control of the money printing apparatus of right. society. Right. But we're not. Right. It's the Federal Reserve, which is privately owned, and then there's a lot of private banks that are part of the system. It's essentially yeah. a banking cartel, and I don't think it's yeah. all that much different than the, uh, the royal families that have a monopoly over the Middle East's oil yeah. rights, the Arab facade that is was established essentially by Britain and taken over by the United States. Yeah. Most wars are fought over oil rights in the Middle East. So the banking cartel and the oil cartel, I see lots of similarities where there's a small group of people that control the banking system and another group of people that control the oil reserves of the world. We're an oil-based economy. And those two systems are very interlinked. Uh, the, the oil yeah. rights and the... Uh, the oil countries, uh, the oil rich countries and the resource rich countries of the Middle East that control the reserves, um, it's protected by NATO and the United States and Britain uh, as long. And we, and we support these puppet regimes, these puppet governments uh, like Saudi Arabia, who has a terrible and abysmal human rights record. But we support yeah. the Arab facade that, again, was established by Britain, I believe, after the World War One. Um, but we support these governments just as long as the money flows to the West, to Western banks in New York and London. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't remember. Was it was it Truman who said he's he's a bastard, but he's our bastard? Oh, yeah. It's a Moza regime in, yeah. in Nicaragua. I can't remember if it's Truman or someone else now. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, of course... Uh, I mean, you, you, you talked about banking there. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I have a whole chapter on, uh, on the nature of money. Now, one of the things that I talk about in my book, I, I investigate this system, Copiosis. So, I mean, you can check it out yourself, copiosis.org. You can go on YouTube, uh, Copiosis in six minutes. So um, this, was, this was a system created by uh, an American guy by the name of Perry Gruber. Um, I've interviewed him for my, my podcast. Um, but one of the, the writers who I really go to for, for 
for money creation and alternatives to to the monetary system we have at the moment is um, Thomas Greco. Now, the thing, one of the things that I like about Thomas Greco um, is he started off as an industrial engineer, and it was only when it, I think he was in his forties that he became an economist. So he's kind of approaching the nature of money as a kind of technical problem as an engineer would. Now, the thing is, as soon as you start looking at money, how it exists today, it's not very difficult to find out why it's so problematic. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So as things stand, all money is lent into existence bearing debt. So let's say for the sake of the argument, I want to get a loan to start a business. Um, and it doesn't matter if this is in euros, in pounds or in dollars. I mean, the principle is the same. So I go to a ba bank in the UK and I want to borrow $10,000. Now, first of all, uh, under fractional reserve banking, they don't need to have $10,000, uh, £10,000. And they only need like, what, 5% in the vaults? Right. Well, yeah. I, I think what's, com what's common now is one nine. So that would mean... If this guy, let's say some guy wants to start a private bank and he's done all the requisite pieces of paper, if he has £1,111.12, pence, he can legally create £10,000 because he has one-ninth of that. So I go to this banker. I want to borrow £10,000. He doesn't have it. He just has one-ninth of this. He creates £10,000 from nothing. But... Let's say he's charging 5% interest. So he creates £10,500 of debt, but only £10,000 of money. So there is always more debt than there is money. Always, right? Always. With, with when money is lent into existence bearing debt, there's always more, more debt. It can never be repaid. So let's imagine that there's like 20 businesses who do the same thing. So they create what? 20 times uh, 10,000, what's that, 200,000. They create 2 million pounds, but they create 2,100 of debt. Um, now, here's the thing. At least one of these companies must go out of business so that the money that they had goes to the other company so that they can afford to service the debt. So you're always going to have bankruptcies under this system. It's simply unavoidable. And the debt keeps on growing and it grows and it grows and it grows like a cancer. And cancer is really exactly the correct word to use in this case. Now, if you read some books about money, they'll say money is a neutral thing. And I think the idea of money is neutral, but it depends on the way that you're creating it. And when you create money as part of a system of fractional reserve banking, Bearing debt, it is, it is intrinsically toxic. It is not a neutral tool. Now, as it happens, Thomas Greco talks about solutions to this problem. So what are the solutions? Well, firstly, money has to be, trans, uh, money has to be created in a transparent manner. We need to know how it's done, right? Now, at the moment, there's so many economists and bankers out there, and they think they're really smart people. I mean... These guys have big, big, big egos, right? But they're not. They're really not that smart, most of them, or that competent. They don't have a clue what's going on in the real world. And there's a, there's a podcaster in, in the UK called uh, 
Gary Stevenson, who used to be a uh, from a working class background, but he became a stockbroker or, or, or um, banker. And he talks about how these guys are absolutely clueless. You know, uh, they're making up as they go along half the time and, and, and their evidence base is poor as well. I have to say most economists. Um, but they overcomplicate money. So it seems like they're really smart. Normal people don't understand it. To but deceive this is a us, trick. to deceive <laughs> the population, because absolutely, to be in control absolutely. of money is to be just to have a lot of power in society. And again, since we gave it to the Federal Reserve system, they private banks and the Federal Reserve essentially can create money independently without government. So it's it's, it's completely a uh, society run by elites. Uh, let me let me quote Thomas Jefferson here, and then kind of get back into what you're saying. The end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of lending institutions and moneyed incorporations. Thomas Jefferson, one of my favorite, uh, whatever, founding fathers or American philosophers, early American philosophers, obviously, you know, he owned slaves. And when he was talking about free people, he was talking about white people and men and not women. Uh, so you got to, you always got to table that um, when he was talking. But he says some good stuff. And I think about the corporations. Uh, per, first off, the Revolutionary War, I think, in the United States, when we fought our independence, whatever, I say our, you know, as an American, from Britain, was to get out of the banking system and to get to, to the, the colonization, you know, Britain of the United States, you know, control, um, whatever, taxation without representation, all that kind of stuff, you know, when you read the, the textbooks here in the United States. Sure, I'm all for that. I think that the American people, uh, independent government would be a great thing. For some people in the United States, you know, democracy, and if I could quote uh, uh, James Madison, the framer of the Constitution, who set up a government uh, to protect the opulent minority from the majority. So essentially a small group of white, propertied, wealthy, you know, uh, members of society to run the country. That's who was uh, a citizen, not indigenous people, not women, not blacks, not slaves. Uh, that's how the country was, you know, set up and governed. Um, but what the Revolutionary War was, again, kind of to um, fight for independence and free the United States from the crown, from a yeah. tyrant, from taxation without representation, but also to free itself from the debt that was placed upon it. And that's what the IMF does with countries around the world, especially in Africa, yeah, Latin does. America, the global South. Um, but uh, right after the Revolutionary War, not too much longer, uh, a few decades, I believe, uh, the United States set up a Federal Reserve system that completely mirrored uh, the Bank of England. So the same money in corporations, uh, and we ever since have been under the uh, constraint of these lending institutions. I go back to the most modern Federal Reserve. It was, again, set up by a banking cartel of elites, some of the, you know, a handful of the richest bankers in the United States. And they... Um, essentially secured for themselves the right to create money and to dominate the currency. So, yeah, I think a lot of the problems in society are uh, the seeds of them are in the banking system or in this yes, system of yes, debt, yes. uh, this unregulated system in a fiat currency where money is just printed out yes. of thin air and there's no democratic participation or control. Uh, the United States basically asks for more money and the Federal Reserve System lends it more money with interest. And then um, through taxes, you know, some of that, you know, is, is gained. But the next time around, we have to ask for even more money with interest sure. to pay off the past debts yeah. uh, and war debts and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, now, like, for 
example, purchasing power of the dollar since the 1970s has shrunk. Uh, middle America is getting crunched. The American dream is a thing of the past. And to quote George Carlin, uh, you know, the American, they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. So, but yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. inflation, real wages in the United States since the deregulation of the banking system have not uh, kept up with inflation. Uh, real wages in the United States for about two thirds of the country are at the same level or even less than they were in 1979, even with enormous gains to technology and productivity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, so many different parts to unpack there. So I think on, you know, who, who I would refer to for evidence on, on the way that banking is used as a form of oppression is uh, John Perkins, another one of your uh, compatriots, um, and his book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. An absolute classic. And I mean, I remember when I was at university in, in, in the early 90s, you know, the stuff that he was talking about was, was the stuff of conspiracy theory. But I mean, it's true. And, and, and he, he kind of spells it out in extreme detail because he wasn't a banking insider. But I mean, one of the things that I said about economists earlier being, I mean, basically a bunch of bullshit merchants, there are honorable exceptions. But I mean, you know, so I'll tell you what, in, an, in a standard economic textbooks, and this has been the case since the 1950s, they'll tell you that there are three possible functions of money. So as a medium of exchange, a, a unit of account, and a store of value. Now, here's the thing. I say, and it's pretty obvious, that there are at least four functions of money. So there are those three functions of money, and then there is at the very minimum social control. Now, I mean, They've been printing these e economic textbooks for more than 70 years, and they're not identifying uh, money as a form of social control. I mean, it's like, are they blind? Um, are they hallucinating some kind of parallel reality? I mean, it's quite obvious that, that money is used as a form of social control. And yet these economists, I mean, they're professionals doing a job. They've failed to identify this. Now, I say mainstream economists who fail to identify money as a form of social control are either a extremely extremely stupid unintelligent thick or they're a bunch of liars um or they're a, they're in they're in denial they've internalized the values they've internalized yeah. the values of a capitalist system that preserves wealth power um for a select group of people in society it's really hard i read a lot of Noam Chomsky. He's my favorite author. Uh, and he talks about this a lot. There's like forms of self-censorship or even more extreme. There's even thoughts it wouldn't do to think in a capitalist society, like yeah. uh, cooperation, yeah. mutual aid, solidarity. Those types of things are never mentioned in American society. But it's really hard for people to believe one thing and say another. So what they typically do is internalize the values of a capitalist system and their indoctrination. And it's really, really hard to rise to a level of power and prestige in society if you don't um, agree with yeah. some of the core yeah. values like you know, self-interest and personal gain and wealth and greed as yeah. being, you know, maybe good things. Yeah, that, that is also true. And, and I think a lot of them have come to believe that somehow money isn't a form of social control. You know, I, I think a lot of them have internalized that and they're basically suffering from a form of cognitive dissonance. You know, I, I think this that's quite common amongst bankers and uh, economists, you know, that they they do they have 
gone down this road so far that you know they've internalized this cognitive dissonance that they suffer from i think there's some good ones out there i love professor wolf's work he's got all kinds of videos richard wolf and books out there great stuff he's a yale economist a marxist economist but uh he talks about mondragon and co-ops a lot i like his uh message and the things he educates people about. Uh, generally, I think economics, I mean, there's definitely some uh, exceptions like Richard Wolff and then uh, Thomas Piketty. He has got some great work. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, I think he's a Frenchman, uh, but, you know, talks a little bit about Europe and the United States, but mostly Europe, but all kinds of good stuff and graphs. Uh, but that's one thing I think economics does. It's kind of, a, in my opinion, at least the mainstream, not these people out on the left fringes, like uh, Professor Wolf or Piketty, Thomas Piketty, economics to me seems like a field of study that justifies uh, inequality, poverty, injustice, and I think you know it's a soft science. It's a humanity. Uh, there's a, it's very it's very conservative. There's a doctrine. There's an ideology yes. to it uh, yes, in the mainstream. And I think for any economist, I think if you give an economist, especially a good one, a conclusion that you want. They can go ahead and make you a model to get that conclusion and show you nice graphs and formulas and it looks all tight and glossy yeah. and put it, some fancy pictures in there. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, this is a scientific formula. Well, not exactly. you know. Yeah. And Adam yeah. Smith talked about a lot of the architects of policy in the free market, which uh, he only mentions once in the book. But the architects of policy seem to always benefit um, you know, from the laws you know, put in place, whether it's the banking system or just generally – um, you know, the, these architects of policy, these people that are in high positions of power typically use that wealth and power to gain more wealth and power. It's kind of how the system works, at least yes. in a capitalist yes, society. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, and, and you're right. There are some good uh, economists out there. Harjun Chang, I, w I think it's worth a read. Um, in the UK, Kate Rauff, she wrote Donor Economics which I have to say is, is an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion. I, I thoroughly recommend it to, to anyone, Donut Economics. Um, and there are, there are a few others, but most of, most of the, well, orthodox economists are, are absolute bullshit merchants. Um, now, I studied economics when I was younger. Um, we have these exams in the UK, A-levels, which you do to get into university. So I did A-level economics. Um, I have a degree in Latin American studies, uh, so a sixth of my degree was was economics. So, okay, development, the, the, the economics of developing countries, focusing on Latin America. And I have a master's degree in water and environmental management, so I've done uh, environmental economics. So I've studied economics at, at, at you know, quite a high level. Um, and, yeah, most of them are bullshit merchants, um, really are. And so... Often, if you study economics at university, you'll go into the class, the first class you go to, and the, uh, the lecturer will post you the question, economics, art, or science? And then there'll be a debate, and, and they'll say, oh, yes, economics is a science, the dismal science. Now, here's the thing. It's not science. Now, when they say it's the dismal science, it's like they're making out that they're having a laugh at themselves. You know, <laughs> we don't take ourselves too seriously. We say we're dismal scientists. But actually, they take themselves extremely seriously, these people. They have massive egos. But it's not science. It's a pseudoscience. The study of economics in general can rightly be described as a pseudoscience. Now, I'll give you an example. So there's this 
theory, and it's sometimes called, uh, what's it called? Gold before green, right? And, you know, that you have to destroy the environment before you can put in these regulations so you can make money so that you can have a vibrant economy. And then later on, when things are up and moving, you can kind of put more environmental regulations in um, and, and, and kind of, you know, not have pollution later. But you've got to have pollution to start with. Now, this is in part based on this idea called the Kuznets curve. By, uh, and this was originally created by an economist by the name of Simon Kuznets. Now, here's the thing. Kuznets admitted that basically he had no evidence for this. But here's the thing. It fitted the prevailing narrative. So these economists who are, and their evidence base is, is absolute drivel, um, they, they jumped on this because it served their ideological bent, right? The Kuznets curve. But actually, you know, there's no evidence for it. It's, 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 it's absolute rubbish. And this is, the, it, this is the case after case after case. So another thing which I think is a kind of economic orthodoxy, which the evidence is poor. So we're told privatization will solve everything. So in the UK, uh, I remember when British Rail was privatized. It was privatized in, I think it was, it was under John Major's uh, premiership. So I think around, was it 93, 94, something like that? I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the year, but, but between 90 and 97. And here's the thing. We were told that train fares would go down and the service would get, would get better. Now, I'm 52 years old, right? I've been using the trains in, in this country for more than half a century. And I can tell you, prices have gone up and the service has got worse. Now, here's the thing. There's, there's now like, I don't know, eight, a dozen different train companies in the UK. So um, you might, whereas before it used to be one unified network. So the government decided that it was better to be in private hands and not owned by the British government. But actually, some of these train operators are run by the French government. So how come it's all right for the French government to run our train service, but it's not all right for our own government to, write, to, to, to run our train service? And I mean, so the French government are taking a cut from providing a poorer service than previously existed and charging more money. So, you know, this kind of mantra of privatization always makes things better. It's just an absolute nonsense. You know, the evidence base is, is poor. Now, perhaps in some cases, privatization can in, improve services, right? I've no doubt that in some cases it's true, but they don't say in some cases, they lay it down as some kind of natural law like gravity. But here's the thing, economists who talk about laws of economics, they're talking about things which are not objective truths, they're subjective truths. So, you know, I might say the subjective truth, um, you know, people from the north of England are friendlier than people from the south of England. Well, I mean, you know, can make that statement as some kind of objective reality, but this is what economists do all the time. You know, they, they take some kind of evidence that fits their argument, and then ignore anything that doesn't and say it's a law of nature. The, the thing would be, what's the common good? You know, would, let's say, a, a mass public transportation system, which we don't have here in the United States, maybe outside of a handful of select cities, 
uh, a mass transportation system, like a tax for it, for example, uh, or I'm sorry, like a fare for a subway, for example, or a train, that's essentially a tax. Uh, that is a tax on the poor uh, because typically, you know, the wealthy don't ride trains and buses to work. So that's a direct sure, tax. Sure, yeah. Uh, a regressive tax on the poor who are paying out of pocket. But I think for most people, the common good would be, hey, a functioning transportation system that is free to use, that comes out of my tax dollars, that is clean and well-funded. That's a good thing for the common good. But maybe not everyone would say that's the common good. For example, maybe a rich investor with a train company or whatever, a rail company, they might say, hey, no, I'm going to buy into this uh, and I'm going to Profit and for me, a private privatization of the rail would be much better. You know, so for some individuals, probably the majority, a well-functioning um, mass public transportation system, especially high-speed rail, would be a good thing. But unfortunately, uh, the world and the country and business is usually run by a select group of elites. Typically, neoliberalism and what even the right and left do together, kind of in this country. Um, we have two parties in the United States, two business parties, just two different factions. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, one party in the United States, the business party with two factions. But typically now it seems like with neoliberalism, just uh, together the right and left uh, work to defund government. Uh, basically to defund programs, dismantle government public programs so that, you know, maybe healthcare or education or transportation doesn't work correctly. Uh, it's poorly run, like the NHS, which what they're trying to do. And then when it's running so poorly and it's not working correctly because it's defunded, then they call it to be privatized and sold off yeah. to like billionaires and corporations. Yeah. So that's typically how it's yeah. done. First, you yeah. defund it, make it inoperable and run poorly sure. and then you sell it off to big business right and, and that's what they did with british rail in this country and um that's what they're doing with the nhs now um but yeah i mean the i have to say the evidence just simply does not support that you get a better service when things are privatized um you know it really depends on how it's done and safeguards in place and all sorts of different things but um, yeah, you know, privatization. I, 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 I'm seriously not convinced myself. I'm open to some public industry. I don't think that I certainly don't want a massive state, uh, some big bureaucracy that plans everything out. But I think some things like uh, housing, education, healthcare, and water, I think that should be publicly owned, publicly managed. Uh, I think we should have um, the commons, you know, uh, common places that. People like parks and, you know, nature reserves, and I think that's all great things. Um, I don't think that a select group of people should own everything, you know. So I think it's a good thing um, for public ownership, participation, democracy. I think those are all great things, uh, and especially as it relates to, like, water and stuff. Uh, but I'm not completely against um, privatization of everything. Uh, you, you know, you have to go case-by-case case examples. Uh, but typically what we get in this country is um, what neoliberalism has become is essentially, um, you know, research and development, for example, in computers and the Internet. Uh, that was funded for decades. Um, but the profits are all private. So what we get is corporate welfare for elites, uh, but rugged yeah. free market yeah. capitalism for the poor. So uh, this allows me to read a quote here from MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in the United States. He was talking about, we all too often have socialism for the rich 
and free market capitalism for the poor. And that's when uh, I think MLK, you know, was targeted by the establishment. Um, you know, a lot of people were all for um, his uh, talks and marches against social and racial injustice. But when he started to attack the economic system and when he planned a, uh, a march, I believe in Memphis, uh, against, uh, you know, the oppressors and the capitalist class, uh, not fairly, um, you know, paying sanitation workers. Uh, that is when he was targeted and assassinated, and that's when he became the enemy of corporate America. Uh, I believe this was Mark Twain, uh, but I, I've seen it attributed to other people, too. When the rich rob the poor, it's called business, but when the poor fight back, it's called violence. And a lot of quotes here. Um, and we had mentioned a bunch of economists. This is John uh, Maynard Keynes, one of the most famous post-World War II economists. He said that practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's not much arguing with that, really. Um, I'm just going to see if I can answer you with a, with, with a quote here from... Uh, wait a moment. Um, I can't find it now. Uh, Tolstoy once said, Money is a new form of slavery, and distinguishable from the old simply by the fact that it is impersonal, that there is no human relationship between master and slave. So, I mean, money in so many respects is the most important cornerstone of the system that we have. And without reimagining money, uh, you know, there's no solving the problems, you know, environmental problems, problems of inequality, you know, it's just not gonna happen. Um, so like I say, I mean, you know, Thomas Greco, um, this system copiosis, they are possible alternatives. But I mean, people have to imagine that another way is possible, you know. So, so much of this comes back to stories and narratives. Now, we're bombarded by the media. There are no alternatives. This is the way it has to be. You know, know your place. You lot are going to have to suck it up and, like, you know, have carbon credits and, you know, Everything's going to be monitored. You're going to have central bank digital currencies. But I mean, we all know that the super rich will still be flying around in private jets and doing what they like. So we have to imagine that money can be done differently. And let's not forget that it's not tied to gold. It's not tied to silver. It's not tied to oil. It's not tied to electricity. They are fiat currencies created. Uh, and, and, and they work so long as there's faith in the system. As soon as people on a mass scale lose faith in the system, these fiat currencies will collapse. Now, it happened in Weimar, Germany, and arguably was one of the reasons for the rise of Hitler, although obviously there were lots of reasons for that. Um, but we, we have no choice other than to reimagine money um, and tell new stories. Uh, I, you know, it's one of these things that I, I, I can't stress this enough, this, this, this issue of narratives. You know, we, we, we push these narratives by the media. And I think it was Chomsky who said something along the lines of, you know, 
there's um, a narrow band of, of uh, opinion and argument is tolerated, but very robust argument within that band. But as soon as you step out of that narrative, you're shot down. So, I mean, in the case of the UK, you know, Corbyn, we, we, we're trying to have another way of doing things, you know, um, stopping the privatisation of the NHS and all these kind of things. And I mean, they couldn't blackmail him. They couldn't bribe him. So they smeared him, you know. And once you step out of that narrative, um, you're going to get shot at. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very common. So, yeah, you ne- ne- uh, mentioned two two anarchists there. Uh, Tolstoy, I believe, was an anarchist. Great quote. Chomsky, my favorite author, philosopher, and anarchist, and he discussed uh, in Manufacturing Consent how the media, again, yeah, sets the framework, a very narrow frame of debate, discussion, although it's very lively, which makes it appear on the surface, at least, that there's yeah. actually real differences when there's not really. Uh, and no, the media controls, yeah, the agenda-setting media, the corporate media controls uh, the argument and the debate through a various number of filters. Again, Manufacturing Consent, check it out if you haven't. Uh, they have an agenda. They use historical engineering, hand-picked experts, maybe someone that went to Yale or Harvard to argue their point. So it's all official. Uh, and they use like tone and all sorts of um, filters to ensure that the right message gets out um, and uh, that not, you know, alternative ideas that might um, interfere with the wealth and privilege and power of a select minority uh, in the population. Uh, why don't we, we only have a couple more minutes here. Uh, I want you to promote your YouTube channel and your book. So we will finish with that. But can you speak uh, maybe to religion a little bit? You're a, a Buddhist. I've done some Zen Buddhist writings. I'm a philosopher. I don't really have, I'm agnostic when it comes to religion. I do like Zen Buddhism. I do like Eastern philosophy. I'm more of a Western philosopher, uh, although I like a little bit of both. Really, the last few years, I've pretty much concentrated on the Enlightenment era in Western philosophy, but I did do several years back a lot of reading on uh, Zen and Buddhism. So can you speak to just religion generally and Zen Buddhism for maybe people that aren't familiar with uh, that school of thought and that philosophy or that religion? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, I'm from the UK. I'm British uh, uh, and I'm a Buddhist convert. Um, I lived in Thailand for nearly nine years. Um, my ex-wife is Thai, you know, my daughter is uh, mixed race, biracial, whatever you want to call it, you know, Thai, British. Um, and I ordained, I took refuge, it's called in the Thai tradition, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. I, I did that in the north of Thailand in at the end of 2012. Um, so, I mean, the reason that I'm a Buddhist, because obviously I didn't grow up a Buddhist, my family are not Buddhists, um, you know, I'm white and British and... Uh, you know, most Buddhists are Asians. Um, it's an Asian religion. Um, and Western Buddhism is kind of the youngest tradition in, in Buddhism. So it's maybe less than 200 years old, let's say. And Buddhism is two and a half thousand years old. So, you know, it's something I have in common with uh, Richard Gere and Tina Turner. Is there uh, both Western Buddhists? Um, you know, if you're not Asian and you're a Buddhist, you're, a, you're a, 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 an ethnic minority amongst Buddhists. But um, in the Western tradition, there's three main influences, and that's the Thai forest monk tradition. So you'll find that a lot of Westerners uh, have lived and studied in Thailand. There's, there's two monasteries that are quite famous for having a lot of uh, Westerners 
um, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn means teacher in Thai, Ajahn Chah was in the north of Thailand and Ajahn Bodhidasa was in the south of Thailand. And they had a lot of Westerners uh, studying with them. The Zen tradition of Japan, that's another big influence on Western Buddhism. So a lot of Western Buddhists have studied in Japan as well. And finally, there's the Tibetan tradition. Now, in this case, um, Tibetans left Tibet after the, the invasion by China. Um, I can't remember the year now, the late 1940s or early 1950s, around that time. So a lot of Tibetans went into exile in India. Some of them went to America. Uh, some of them went to um, various parts of, of Europe. So there's a strong part of the um, Tibetan tradition in, in, in uh, Western Buddhism as well. But I mean, for me, I, you know, I come from the Thai tradition, really. Um, and the reason I'm a Buddhist is it helps me understand myself and it helps me make sense of the world. And I mean, that's it really for me. Um, I mean, there are there are other reasons, but they're fairly minor. I mean, I like the stories of the Buddha, you know. Um, so again, we're back to storytelling. You know, they, they tell a good story in Buddhism um, and they've got a lot of number things. So, you know, the triple gem of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, um, five hindrances, eightfold noble path, uh, four noble truths. And, and, you know, I like numbers, you know, I, I have ADHD and, I, and I'm good with numbers, right? You know, apparently if you have ADHD, you either, you're very bad with numbers or you're very good with numbers. There's not much in the middle. Um, and I'm very good with numbers and, and it just kind of appeals to the way that my mind works. But I mean, Buddhism sometimes calls itself the science of the mind and I have to say, I think this is true. I mean, Buddhism is really concerned about the way that your mind works. Now, in Islam and in Christianity, there's this aspect of you're going to be saved by an external force. God's going to save you. You're going to be saved through Jesus or the prophet Muhammad. Now, Buddhism doesn't say this. Buddhism says you kind of have to save yourself. And you do that through living a life of balance. And part of that balance involves meditation. So, I mean, in Buddhism, you know, meditation really is a cornerstone. And there's lots of different ways you can do meditation. Um, so the most common form of meditation around planet Earth is mindfulness with breathing, right? And this is a form of what is sometimes called one-pointedness meditation. So you take one thing, in this case, the breath. And you, you use that as the object of meditation. So the breath goes in, the breath goes out, breath goes in, breath goes out. You just you just follow the breath. Now, what happens is you're sitting there on your on your cushions and the mind gets bored or following the breath because it's not like particularly stimulating. Do you know what I mean? It's not like watching TV or playing a video game. So the mind does one of two things. It either goes to the past or it goes to the future. It's not in the present moment. Now, if you go to the past, you're kind of drawing on your memory and you're thinking of some situation. So maybe you're at school one day and some kid bullied you. You start thinking about it. Well, first of all, when you're thinking about the past, when you're remembering, your memory's not gonna be accurate. So the way that you remember it might not be the way that it happened. And it certainly won't be the way that the other person remembers it. But you're then kind of building this fantasy around it. And, and it's kind of, it's not helpful. 
And if your mind goes to the future, you're fantasizing about something which may happen. Um, but really, what you then do, you don't beat yourself up about losing your concentration. You just bring your mind to the back to the breath. Breath goes in, breath goes out. And you sit there for half an hour or however long you're going to meditate for. And you just follow the breath. When you lose your concentration, you come back to the breath. Now, sometimes if you're meditating for a long time, or particularly if you're in a retreat where it's silent, and I've been on quite a number of 10-day silent meditation retreats, and it's a very profound experience to, to have 10 days of silence. And I mean, 10 days is not that long. But believe me, when you're on day number five, it feels like a long time because you haven't spoken to anyone for five days and you're not gonna speak to anyone for five days. But sometimes, your mind clears. And I mean, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to describe. Um, I mean, it, it's happened to me on a few occasions, not that often, I have to say, not very often. But you kind of get this clarity of mind. And in some cases, um, almost, I hesitate to use the phrase out of body experience, because I don't want to make out that it's some kind of astral projection or something like that because it is those are different things um but you can have this extreme sense of peace and you know if, if you have a meditation practice and you do half an hour of meditation every morning i mean in my experience my life is better when i meditate you know i mean it's as simple as that and although it's very common in the buddhist traditions Meditation is not, or in and of it, of in and of itself, a religious thing. I mean, you can have a religious belief, no religious belief, an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Meditation is for humans, right? You know, um, anyone can do it. You just need a technique. Now. In my own case, I have used mindfulness with breathing, but I prefer creative visualizations. And for anyone who's interested, the, the author who I would recommend for this uh, is goes by the name of Shakti Gawain. And she's written a number of books on creative visualizations. And I found them very effective for, for um, habit change in my own life. And kind of, I mean, you know, manifestation is really big these days. Um, and manifestation really is a form of creative visualizations. And I mean, you know, there's not enough time to really go into the details here. I have some videos on my uh, on my YouTube channel about them. Um, but I mean, I would say if you want to do something to improve your life, get a meditation routine. You know, it's not the techniques are not that difficult. You know, you can you can find stuff online. Or, you know, you can go and find a teacher, you know, you need to learn it. You need to get a, 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 a sitting posture that you're happy with. Um, get a technique and then just practice it. You know, there's, there's no there's no substitute just for for trying it. Um, yeah, and that's that's yeah. So I took refuge. Yeah, like 10 years ago. So I formally been a Buddhist for 10 years. But I mean, actually, I, I started reading and, and and studying about buddhism when i was 17 so uh yes so long time now
I dig it. Uh, I, I read some quotes. I kind of kind of circle back to um, control your thoughts. Don't let your thoughts control you. Something like that. And I think you're able to do that when you are in the present moment. I also read some stuff, and it sounds like if you are thinking about Zen, you know, then you're not Zen. You know, it just is. You know, kind of just exists. Yeah. Nirvana, yeah. that sort of stuff. I, I do dig it. I like it. I'm more into the Western philosophy, but it's very interesting to me. It's different. Um, we're in good company. Uh, if you're playing a drinking game to this podcast, we've mentioned Richard Gere and Tina Turner again. So go ahead and drink. Uh, this is the fifth in a row. No, I'm totally kidding. That's just random. I had that joke. I wrote it down. Uh, I want to, before we finish about your YouTube channel and your book, I got one question. Uh, the universe, is there a creator what is God? I'm agnostic uh, as it relates to religion. I don't think these are questions we can know the answer to. Uh, but from your point of view, uh, what is the universe all about? Was it created? Uh, is it just some sort of rat, random happenstance? Uh, is there a God? What is God? Is any of those questions um, uh, don't know intelligible? Don't know answer to that. Um, now, as for the purpose of life, I think the purpose of life is to grow as an individual and to grow as 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 within relationship to others. Now, Buddhism has this uh, idea called uh, what is it? Anatta in in Pali, which is the language of Buddhism, which it translates as non-self. And it's a strange thing because for 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 individuals that become enlightened, they they kind of realize their non-self. But it's kind of like the self and the non-self kind of coexist. Um, I mean, what can I say? It's a, it, it, it's a tricky one to explain. But um, whether there's a creator, I don't know. I kind of prefer to think that there is. Um, but I mean, you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I don't hold a strong opinion on that one. I prefer to think that there is because, you know, it just makes me more optimistic about life. Um but I mean, you know, I've had this argument with a close friend of mine, Tom, about the nature of uh, free will. He doesn't believe in free will. I do. So do now, I. I, I, I believe ridiculous. in free will yeah. because it makes, because I like the idea of it. I don't like the idea that everything's predetermined. Um, now, whether what I believe about it is immaterial to whether there is or there isn't free will. But I act in the world as if there is free will. I do too. Right? And so yeah. does everyone. So does everyone. Like you wouldn't even engage in a debate with someone if you didn't believe in free will. Other otherwise, you know, if it's all predetermined, what's the point? So even people that don't believe in free will, of course believe in free will, otherwise they wouldn't even engage you in a debate. That's my argument, but yeah, it could be we could all be predetermined. That's for sure, I guess a possibility. Everything could be predetermined, everything could be random or something in between. These are, you know, interesting questions to think about, but I don't think they go m much farther or much deeper outside of maybe graduate level philosophy courses. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, sure. what, what about, um, last question I had now, I, I say, keep saying last question, but what about like personal identity self? When you look at yourself in the mirror, when you give yourself labels or describe yourself, do you ever think about that? Or do you try not to think about it? Like, wh who are you? Uh, no, who I, I, I do think about it now. I mean, the issue of labeling, and I remember many years ago, I, I studied sociology and there was a guy called Howard Becker, I think his name was, who had this labeling theory. 
how you know you get some kid at school he's labeled a naughty boy and then he keeps being told he's a naughty boy and then he plays up to that and eventually he becomes a petty criminal and ends up in prison now these things are sometimes true no doubt now the thing about labels is you're always going to get them so um i think it's it's better that you have a choice in the labels that you get so for example in my case um it was suggested to me uh about two and a half years ago something like that that i had adhd and so i immediately went and researched it and i started reading a lot about it and it was like yes 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 and it was you know it was quite a shock to me because you know i'd been a teacher so i'd studied about um you know adhd and autism and stuff um, but i'd never thought about it in my own case um and i read gabor mate's book scattered minds about adhd and it made a lot of sense to me and helped me understand myself but um i came across this term neurodivergent and i thought i'm having that as a label i'm happy with neurodivergent because i think that i am Right. I'm not sure what that means. I've seen that thrown around. Can you define it for us? Neurodivergent. Well, I've seen a lot of that. Here's the thing. I One of the reasons I like it is because it's not well defined. Right. You know, the, so so my book, Post-Capitalism, an alternative to the Great Reset. I don't think I would have written that if I was neurotypical. Right. You know, because, you know, I think out of the box, you know, it's natural for me to kind of see connections that other people don't see. Now, that's useful for certain things, but for a lot of things fitting in with, you know, more typical people, uh, sometimes it can be a bit of a pain in the ass, but I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Um, but some labels are useful. Um, you know, so I've had the label teacher, father, you know, brother, whatever, um, you know, British, English, Yorkshireman, um, you know, white, in Thailand, Falang, you know, that's what I used to get called because that's what Thai people uh, call anyone who's white. Um, and I mean, you get these labels, you're going to be labeled in life. Um, now, some of these labels are really extremely unhelpful um and you know sometimes you can fight against them and get rid of them sometimes you have to embrace them you know um so yeah my my take on labels is be selective about which ones you're going to take on because you do get some choices and the ones that you don't get a choice about well i mean fight against it or get pissed off about it you know make your own choice on that one yeah, I think uh, I think like terms of political discourse are propagandized. Typically, these terms mean uh, their traditional meaning, uh, like anarchism, which is like a highly organized society that just opposes, you know, centralized power, an illegitimate power, versus the propagandized form of anarchism, uh, which is some maybe uh, chaotic society with no rules and everyone, you know survival of the fittest or social Darwinism or some sort of nonsense that's not really what anarchism means, at least not to me. Anybody can have the term of anarchism, but yeah, I think kind of what you're saying is if you own it, um, 
you know, that can kind of be part of your label or how maybe you view the world. But yeah, anarchist is one of the things I take uh, as a term uh, for myself, at least in terms of my political philosophies. Um, and it means something to me, but it might mean something different to other people. Same with like socialism, communism, right. liberalism, right. republicanism, conservatism, sure. whatever, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I've taken the anarchist label, the philosopher label. Um, you know, those are the sorts of things that I enjoy. Classical liberal, uh, certainly no neoliberal, uh, and even classical conservative in, in terms of I believe in things like freedom, justice, equality, and enlightenment era values. Um, but you know, it just depends. And again, these again, especially these term, terms of political discourse, they are propagandized, and a lot of times they are used to defame the other person's position. Um, but sure. I think um, we had a great discussion today. Uh, I do have your book coming in the mail, Post Capitalism: Alternative to the Great Reset. Uh, I'd love to catch up with you again in the future, maybe after I read the book. Uh, we had a good discussion, even though I haven't quite read it yet. But a lot of the stuff you're talking about, I think our views of the world and society are very similar. Um, but at the end here, I usually give my guests an opportunity to promote themselves, their platform, uh, your YouTube channel, and the videos that you do. And of course, maybe again, um, promote the book uh, that you've written, Post-Capitalism, and Alternative to the Great reset that i ordered on amazon that should be in the mail here in the next few days sure thanks um so on so i'm self-published on amazon so if you're a publisher looking to publish something that's uh, um about paradigm change i'm i'm open to uh, offers uh so my book is post-capitalism an alternative to the great reset took me 10 years to write uh on YouTube, I post videos as the Renaissance Yorkshireman. So if you go to YouTube and put in Renaissance Yorkshireman, uh, now your American viewers may, uh, your American listeners may not know, Yorkshire is a county in the north of England. Um, it's closer to Scotland than to, than to London, but you know it's still in, in England. Uh, so yeah, the Renaissance Yorkshireman, that's what I post as on YouTube. So I've got videos about post-capitalism, got some on meditation, some on lucid dreaming, um, some on various different economic and political issues. On Twitter, I'm Alasdair underscore Lord. It's, that's my name. So Alasdair is, is spelt A-L-A-S-D-A-I-R and Lord L-O-R-D. So Alasdair underscore Lord, that's where I you'll find me on Twitter. And my, I have a website, which is alasdairlord.co.uk. And um, yeah, when I launch my, um, uh, my first course this month, um, you'll be able to find information about it on my, on my website. Very good. Anything else to say to our audience out there? Yeah, so just, just the last thing, um, you, you mentioned labels right at the end there. So yeah, politically, I, I consider myself a post-capitalist. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you read my book, you'll find out. Um, but primarily, it's about um, reimagining money, accepting that states and non-states should run in parallel, ending the war on drugs, an indefinite moratorium on the arms trade, um, and recognizing that we have psychological issues that we have to deal with ourselves, but also recognizing that dark triad personality types 
can have very disproportionate effect on the on the systems that exist. Sounds awesome. I really appreciated our discussion tonight or today. Uh, again, I'd love to get in uh, contact in the future, especially after I finish my book. Uh, I am interested. We had on our pre-call a lot of stuff about the educational system, lucid dreaming, maybe psychology, the subconscious, all interesting things to me. We didn't quite get there, but we got to a lot today. I think it was, a, again, a great discussion, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Alistair Lord, the uh, Renaissance Yorkshireman. Thank you so much for your time today. It was great. Stay in touch, my friend. My pleasure, MC Squared. Adios. Adios. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Alistair Lord, otherwise known as the Renaissance Yorkshireman, for a great discussion on politics, economics, philosophy, religion, and many more topics. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.